After a firefight, they killed Hello, you're listening to the second podcast from Forecast International. We're covering today the Middle East defense markets. Um, we have Derek Basacchio, International Military Markets Analyst for the Middle East, and Dan Darling, who covers Asia and Europe. And uh, my name is Doug Royce. I cover aircraft, uh, helicopters, and engines. So uh, my question to you, either uh, Dan or Derek, is last year the Arab League began discussing plans to develop a joint defense force. Um, this idea has been proposed in the past and typically never made it much headway. What has been the result of this latest effort? Idea for it in the 1950s, and what's happened is every single time they run into the same issues with it, they don't exactly have a, a genuine purpose for it. They don't know, should it be a, a bolster against Iran? Should it be something where they intervene in certain conflicts? And where do they intervene? So all of these issues are manifesting again. They doc talked about it last April and May, and they tried to come to some conclusion and then have mostly kind of shelved it. They've, you know, in the year since, they've been bringing it up again and again and again, but they haven't made any tangible progress with it. Well, let me walk back for a second. The Arab League, um, it's something, it's a term I hear, I've heard often. What is it? Who's included? I mean, we tend to look in the Mideast at Iran on one side and their proxies, Saudi Arabia and some of the other um, Muslim nations on the other. Who is in the Arab League and how does it break down power-wise in the region? So the, the Arab League has 22 formal members and there's some observer states that, that are included in it. Essentially, the, the uh, requirement for being is being an Arab state uh, to get in. It formed just after World War II and was looking at kind of an effort to build greater economic and security uh, assurances between all of the countries. It's often compared to, especially its military component, is often compared to NATO in a sense, in its, uh, in its intention, but definitely not in what it's uh, actually done, what it's been capable of. It has been a lot less successful in integrating uh, Arab efforts, mainly because all of these countries have a lot bigger divides in what it is that they want to accomplish, what it is they're concerned about, and uh, gen generally the direction of the mission. And Dan, what do you uh, have to add to that? I would say that one thing to keep in mind with the Arab League in this instance is there's a sectarian divide, um, Sunni, Shiite. So a Saudi proposal for an Arab Defense League might not go over too well in countries with larger Shiite populations such as Lebanon, Iraq, because it becomes a political tool and who will lead the Arab Defense League force? Uh, so it, where, where would a, an Arab League military force fit in with what the U.S. does in the region, what Europe does in the region? I mean, where, what would, how, did, how would this work? Well, ostensibly, it'd be a peacekeeping force, but again, it's the politics that enters into the equation. Would you deploy this, say, into Syria? Right. Would you have it as a standing territorial force, um, elements in one country where they train together, um, they, they garrison together, or is it an anti-terrorism element where it might be more for fighting ISIS, but ISIS elements within their own countries. So there's really no direction for this. 
So, um, so what will we see as the chances of this going through, of, of this ever coming to fruition? Is this something that's sort of a pipe dream, or is it? I would say very little, right. because you could simply look at the European Union and where they have much more shared values and interests and strategic policy alignment and comparing that to the Arab states, very different across the board, right. different political goals. Um, I think the one issue would always be who's really running the show. It's going to be sovereignty elements that are going to create fractures in any Arab defense force or Arab League defense initiative because the smaller states are going to look at the Saudis' actions and wonder whether – Things are being run from Riyadh or Cairo, for instance. And what would the goal be? I mean, who's when you look at something like NATO and they have various peacekeeping missions now, generally the idea is to stop human rights violations or in a, in a situation like Syria now, we see all this migration coming into Europe. The Europeans have a vested interest in trying to reduce the level of, of migration. But what's for this Arab League force? What is their goal? That's that they're going to accomplish, um, Derek. That's that's actually a very good question, and I think that's one that they themselves are still grappling with, and that's part of the problem. Dan talked uh, very well about some of the divides between all these countries, but also the you know differences in what they want for out of the uh, out of such a force is a big uh, stumbling point in you know making it actually work. One of the things that they've tried to do is, you know, decide where is it that, you know, this would even intervene? Would it intervene in Libya? Would it intervene in Syria? Can it be, you know, considered as intervening in Yemen? Right yeah, now there's right. a Saudi-led coalition that's in Yemen, but there's a number of Arab states that are that are firmly against it. There's a number that have just decided to sit on the sidelines. Even with, you know, organizations like the Gulf Cooperation Council, which is much smaller, it's much more uh, has a you know much more of a shared vision for where they want to go. Even they have disputes over who's leading it, and over you know what exactly you know their purpose would be. Their now purpose the GCC is, mainly is Iran, the states that are around the Persian Gulf. Correct, correct. Okay. It's uh, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Qatar, Kuwait, Bahrain, and Oman. Uh, Yemen, although in that area is not a member, they've been discussing it for a while, but they're not a member. And the GCC are you know much more. Uh, united in what it is that they want to do, but even they have a divide in, you know, in who's running the show. Dan talked about uh, for the Arab League, you know, would it be run by Saudi or would it be run by Egypt for, for the GCC? It's been a lot of, is it being run by Saudi? Is it being run by Qatar, United Arab Emirates? And so even they've had that issue and they have, a, you know, much more shared uh, values than the broader Arab League does. Uh, circling back to your question, Doug, I would say the purpose of any joint defense force for the Arab League would be regime survival, quite simply. Oh, you think so? They Definitely. They, the only time um, GCC activated Peninsula Shield in any uh, live action, so to speak, was in Bahrain back in 2011, 2012, uh, Pearl Square, when the protesters were in had occupied Pearl Square, and they went to support the Al Khalifa um, family right. dynasty in Bahrain against perceived Iranian influence peddling with Shiite populations. Right, because the these are not these are these states are not democracies in the sense that 
you know, when you deal with European countries, yeah, our democracy. The most uh, shared vision you have is control. Right. Whether it's Population. the military controlling Egypt or dynastic politics, sheikdoms in the Gulf states. All right. And from a military defense spending standpoint, which is always of interest to our clients, you know, I've noticed in the military aircraft field that that the Gulf states are buying fighter aircraft and advanced equipment in, in really in big ticket items. Um, a lot of times they're no longer buying U.S. the way they used to. So where are we now in the relationship with maybe European companies coming into the Gulf states versus the U.S.? So this has been a, a big issue, especially recently. Uh, Reuters ran an article several days ago talking about U.S. fighter jet sales to Kuwait and to Qatar. Now, these have been held up. Qatar was uh, supposed to be buying F-15s. Kuwait was going to buy F-18s, F-A-18s, both of these from Boeing. And what's happened is even though the United States is trying to reassure uh, its Gulf allies uh, over the Iran deal, they've also the United States has been concerned with juggling that also against uh, Israel's interests and making sure that Israel maintains a quality, uh, qualitative military edge. And so what's happened is the United States has kind of uh, just delayed approving these sales. And what's happened for the Gulf countries is they've, you know, quite frankly gotten frustrated with it, so they've searched elsewhere and mostly have turned to European countries. Um, Qatar's moving forward with Rafal purchases. Kuwait's moving forward with uh, Eurofighter Typhoon purchases. Other Gulf countries have also actually looked for European countries as well. But they could arguably get both. Yes. Yeah, they right. could. I mean, and they've they've actually, even as they've moved forward with both these, you know, Typhoon and Rafal purchases, they've kept their options open. Uh, Kuwaiti officials have explicitly said they are still negotiating with the United States for the F-A-18. Because right, one of the things I noticed in, in the Gulf is they buy a huge number of fighter aircraft. And on the other side, you have Iran, whose fighter fleet is, is really decrepit. Outdated. I mean, yeah, they're built in the <laughs> 1970s. I don't know how much they've been modernized. But... Um, it's interesting to see that you have the Gulf states on the one hand, you have Iran, and then you have Israel. And, and I would think that Israel has a, a huge influence on what gets sold into the region from the U.S., less so from Europe. Is that, would that be accurate? That would, yeah, that would definitely be accurate, especially because when it comes to a lot of these U.S. arms sales, Israel definitely gets a say in it. They, you know, the United States might not acknowledge it, Israel might not acknowledge it, but that's the perception that the Gulf has. And especially that the United States, when it's authorizing these sales, one of the things that they do is they look at whether or not this will affect the, uh, the military balance in the region. Oftentimes, when you look at the, when the State Department or the Pentagon, when they approve these sales, that's one of the things they specifically say, is this sale has been approved because, it, you know, the United States does not see it as uh, affecting the military balance in the region. Right. So I think that's definitely a concern that the United States has. That's probably what's bogging down some of these fighter sales even though the United States wants to, you know, make sure that it's supporting the Gulf because the United States wants to make sure the Gulf is reassured over the Iran deal. Something interesting on the Qatar aircraft procurement is recently they were down to 12 fighters. Right, yeah. And now they're that. buying 24 Rafals with a potential for American fighter jets. And right, and I think it, the number was something like 75, which which you have to ask, who is, who's going right. to fly these aircraft? Exactly, who's going to crew them, maintain them, fly them, and it's a classic example of overbuying right. and using armed purchases 
as political means as right. well, um, tying in allies and uh, using quantity as its as a deterrent itself, so right. to speak. But it, on a more practical level, it does not uh, compute with the size of their military right. manpower. And outside the aircraft, I tend to focus on aircraft because that's my area, but what do we see in things like vehicle sales and ships, um, defense electronics, a lot of the, uh, particularly on the, the electronics aspect, you know, you, there's a lot of money in that, in that market, but not a lot of publicity. Do you, that's, that, and that gets back down to issues like command and control systems, early warning sensors, that kind of, what can you say about that area? At least for the Gulf? Yeah, in the Gulf or the Mideast in, in general. For, for the Gulf in particularly, one of the things that they've tried doing, this is where electronics will play into, and this is where missile defense will also play into, is they've tried to develop a joint uh, air defense system that would uh, essentially be focused on dealing with Iranian missiles. And so they've looked at trying to have joint procurements of both missile systems, but also the electronics that go with it, and things like early warning systems so that they would have a more unified approach to if there was a you know a, a potential Iranian missile launch, they would have you know a joint early warning system that picks it up, and they would have a unified approach to shooting it down and you know decide when to shoot it down. The problem with this has been you know the problem more generally has been definitely in unifying their approach. They can't really decide on where the the command center would need to be for this. They can't uh, exactly decide on if a missile is flying over a certain territory, say it's flying over the UAE destined for Saudi Arabia, who shoots it down? Right. Does the UAE shoot it down and Saudi Arabia shoot it down? And so that's been a you know major hindrance, at least in their, their joint procurements. But at least separately, they're definitely they're looking for the type of systems that can boost their radar, you know, boost their radar, boost their surveillance, and give them better control, especially better maritime control over the Persian Gulf, but also, uh, you know, the rest of their waters in that area as well. I think that wraps it up for today's podcast. We'll be uh, coming back in the future intermittently with new podcasts on new defense markets. This is Doug Royce for Forecast International.